at the very heart of Christianity is love. It's, it's, it's very simple. Christianity is so, so simple, isn't it? This is a classic text. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Christianity is really simple. Jesus had in another place was asked by the teachers of the law to summarize what the law is. And he said, this is the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Or the Apostle Paul. In Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding. Except so pay off your mortgages and then the only thing the only obligation upon you will be to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law everything that god had revealed through the hebrew scriptures for a couple of thousand years can be summarized in the commandment to love the commandments you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder you shall not steal you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, how's your love life? it's so simple, isn't it? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Just go and do that. And one level, and this was something I've been thinking a lot about this week, actually for many years, but thinking this week, I thought, how are we as a church community going at becoming a people of love? How are we going at teaching each other teaching each other what it is to love God and love our neighbor as ourself. Like just very simply, that's it. Have we made any progress? In May next year, I will have been the rector here for eight years. That's nearly a decade. And I think about my time here and I go, if we measured the capacity of each of us to love our neighbors as ourselves, has that increased? Because if it hasn't, I've largely been wasting my time. Or you've been wasting your time. Or together we've been doing something other than what's, what is on God's heart, right? I mean, we could be doing lots of other really good things, and we have. And I don't want to beat myself up 
I really am not beating myself up at all. You don't have to, you know, and, and I'm not beating you up yet. That'll come later. But that's it. We can do all kinds of other things. But have we, are we learning to love? So this morning I thought I'd rectify that and uh, and I'll, we're going to look at five steps. This isn't a three-point sermon. It's because it's Christmas. You get a bonus two points just to be a blessing to you. Five steps to love, to become a people of love. And uh, and really, I've I've called this five steps to love. Five steps to love. One, you need a vision of love. You need to understand what it is that love is and what it is that it isn't. And you need to have a clear vision ahead of you about what it is. So uh, I was chatting with Finn before the service and we're talking about the service. She's out in Kids Church. And so she went away. She said, I said, I'm talking about love. So, So she thought I might need some help. Good on her. So I, you know, I thought, there we go. So she's done a list for me of what she thinks love is. Isn't that cute? So love is family, church, Christmas, people, home, pets, Jesus, God, toys, friends, joy, kindness, everything. That's pretty good. Go mum and dad. I reckon, man, go, go Keelan and Wendy. Parenting award for you guys. And all of that is sort of true. But you know what's so remarkable? If you, what would you put in as the blank there? What would you put in the most fundamental definition of love? I just read it out. God is love. Now that's that has we could spend an hour just unpacking some of the implications of that. Let me give you just one profound implication. Love, before it is an action, is a condition of being. So before love is an action, it's actually a condition of being. God's condition of being is love. The primary focus for you and me, therefore, is to become the kind of people where you could you could say, could you not? Here's the challenge. Would anyone say of me, Mark is love? I don't even think Chimmy, our dog, would say that of me if you asked her. I've got a long way to go. But if the goal of the Bible, Paul says we should be like God, we should become like Christ. If God is love, then over the course of our lives, it should be become true of us that people can look at you and say beck is love rolf is love rich is love judy is love jan is love mignon is love like isn't would if you ask people is that what they would think of you i i worry about that sometimes about you about me it's all fine but I worry. I, you know, you go, wow, is that, am I making progress in that? And so I have to have a vision of what love is. 
and immediately we do that we have to we have to say very quickly what love is not and in our culture there are two two things that we often think love is we think love is delight if i delight in you that's somehow love it's a feeling of great positive regard towards this thing right The other very, very common and perhaps more common thing in our culture is we think love is desire. So, and when you mix the two together, you go, love is about me delighting and desiring you. I desire you. So we may say, I love chocolate. I delight in it and I desire it. Is that love? And we can think about that with other people. I love so-and-so. So I delight in them and I desire them. Is that really love? No, it's really not. It's really not. So what is love? Love... is an intention to do good to the object. So love is about, and, and intention is used in this sense in a slightly technical way. It's not just a wish. Love is a set, and by intention we mean a settled commitment that will result in action to do what is good for the other. Okay, that's love. The essence of love is about this deep condition of your being that is oriented towards the good of the other. So, is it right to say you love chocolate? Well, no. You delight in chocolate, you desire chocolate, but what do you do with chocolate? You eat it right you eat it you do not you do not look after its greatest good and preserve its life and polish it up and keep it at just the right temperature so that you can continue to to will its good you don't you, the problem with delight and desire is it actually leads us to consume the other and that fits very deeply into our whole consumer culture. All of the world is offered up to us for us to consume so that the people who offer this up to us can make money out of our consumption. <laughs> right? Everything becomes that. And the tragedy of our lives is that we are so steeped in a culture of consumption that love has been co-opted into this culture of consumption. So we start to see people as objects of delight and desire who we consume. The crassest version of that is clearly pornography of the sex industry, where I have a transaction where I pay you and I consume the pleasure or delight or physical sensations 
dopamine pathways that are activated as I engage with you either in person or in a pixelated form. And we offer up the, the, the illusion of love as an object of delight and desire and a way to make money. And we call it, we think it's, now, now that's the crassest version. The most noble version of this is, is the trend towards long-term serial or medium-term serial monogamy we see in our culture where I delight in you and I desire you intensely and I might get married and I'll have all kinds of vows that I we write our vows together. I never let people write our vows, their vows when I'm married. I did that once. And never again, because they were awful. I'll tell you what most vows, when people write their own vows, and Adam, I hope you know, we've had this conversation, haven't we? They're like, you complete me. You fulfill me. I cannot imagine my life without you. I was empty until I found you. And we're... So what it is, is an intensification of delight and desire. And of course, how long do delight and desire last? And what do you do when someone else is more delightful or more desirable? Where does delight and desire come from? I mean, it's not like delight and desire are wonderful things. And I'm told they're great in a No, they're great in a marriage. I thought that was quite funny. You're all sitting there going, oh, geez. Is Margot okay? <laughs> yeah, she's fine. She's had 25 years of... He's not really saying that, is he? Delight and desire. But they're not love. Love is a settled condition of your soul, of your being, that is oriented to will and to do what is good for the other. It's an intention. We love something when we are devoted to its good or well-being. Okay. Now, that's step two. You need, you need a vision of God is love. I want to be a person of love. Now, I understand love to be an intention to do good to the object, to the person. So that is that your intention? When you think about the people in your life, do you intend to do what is good for them? Have you thought long and hard about what that might be? And are you settled in your conviction that this is what you're going to act and do? So the third thing is love requires an attitude of compassion, greatly overlooked. If you're going to will and do what is good for the other, the attitude that sustains that towards the other person how you think and feel about the other person needs to be compassion now let's pause the english word compassion where does it what let's do some elementary latin for beginners if compassion is a conjunction of two latin words what may they be with Passion with feeling. Compassio is the Latin derivation of compassion. So what compassion is, is an attitude where I, my feelings are, I feel with you. 
I feel with you. And actually, then if you think about it, I suffer with you. The passion play is the play of suffering. So compassion is, as, is the attitude that I regard everybody with. That says, I will, I will understand your humanity and your struggles and your joys and your heartache. And I will know you and I will, I will draw alongside you to feel with you and for you in your struggles and in your suffering. I will carry your burdens and share your life. What's the opposite of compassion? What attitude may be the opposite of compassion? Sorry? Violence? Judgment? Apathy? Indifference? Yeah, so when I look at somebody with just judgment and I go, I, I just... I see nothing but an object of scorn or contempt or derision or failure. I cannot understand or appreciate their humanity and why they've done what they've done and how they've got to where they've got to. Indifference. All of those things are attitudes that kill compassion or without compassion, you're not going to become a person of love right one of my favorite verses you if you've been around a while you'll know this is from 1 corinthians uh, 2 corinthians chapter 1 and it talks about let me see if i could actually dial it up i did not it talks about god being god is the the father of all compassion who comforts us. God is the God of compassion and he comforts us. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing is fourth step. And this is a very interesting one and very practical. You need to decide who is going to be your neighbor. So when the law is fulfilled in the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, the very real question is, well, who is your neighbor? And this is not an obvious question, and only you get to answer it. And why it's important to think about that is that it is simply impossible to love everybody in the world, isn't it? I think part of the reason we struggle with this and we feel like this command is impossible is because we think the whole world is our neighbor and everybody makes a demand on us and I need to have compassion and act in love towards everybody. And that is simply impossible. I don't have the capacity to. It's exhausting. Of course, it's also quite convenient because I can think in general terms about loving my neighbor as this abstract human. I love people. I love all of humanity. It's just individuals that I can't get along with. Right? I mean, then don't we all know that? 
this was brought home to me very clearly when I was a university student in Cape Town a few years ago, during the last years of the apartheid regime in South Africa. I was involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. And what happened in the struggle was a lot of, you know, we are, we are working for justice for all and to bring freedom and equality for all. And, and if you're a Christian, then you, you layer that on with, we love all people. But you know what? There was an enormous amount of, of relational brokenness within the movement, enormous amounts of gender-based violence, for example, within the anti-apartheid. It's okay. I'm protesting and bringing down this edifice of apartheid because I love all of humanity, but, I'm, but I'll rape my fellow participant in the struggle, and that's okay. Because I'm, I love everybody. I, just, I also give myself moral license to treat the individual close to me very poorly. And I was struck by the, the, the great moral flaws and failures up close, even of those who, on the surface, were full of generic love for all of humankind. And that's a very great challenge for all of us. Because who is our neighbor? You get to choose that. It's the person who's closest to you, whom you can actively serve. So the story of the Good Samaritan, right? You may know the story. This bloke's going to Jerusalem. He gets it's a very dangerous road. He gets beaten and robbed, and he's lying on the ground in great strife. And uh, and the story goes: a couple of pious Jews, also on their way to Jerusalem, walk past and pass on the other side of the road because they don't want to be contaminated by touching him. Because if he's dead and they touch a dead body, then they can't go to Jerusalem, perform their religious duties. So they, they walk past on the other side of the road. And then along comes a Samaritan. And the Samaritan, well, I mean, he's not going to, he's, he can't go and offer sacrifice to the temple anyway. So the Samaritan has compassion on him, picks him up, binds him up, takes him to the local hotel, pays his bill in advance, and takes care of him, right? So the Samaritan decided that that guy was his neighbor. That's the point of the story. It's remarkable. But what if the next day the Samaritan was walking on the same road and there was another Jewish bloke who'd been beaten up and was bleeding? What, what do you think the Samaritan would do? Well, maybe he'd do the same thing. And, and what if the day after that, the same thing happened? And the day after that, and the day after that. And, the, and what if, I mean, there's a, a, at some point, the, Samar the, the hotel's going to run out of rooms and the Samaritan's going to run out of money to pay for the hotel rooms because he can't love every beaten, beaten up Jew, can he? I can't love everyone. I can have a vague general desire that good things happen to everybody. But actually becoming a person of love means deciding in the first instance who exactly I'm going to put my energy in to willing and doing what is good for them. Who is my neighbor? Okay. You may never have thought about this. Who is so we're going to do a bit of work, but I want to. I'm going to make this a little more controversial before we get there, and I want to suggest that you are your closest neighbour. 
See, the first person you have a duty to will and to do good for is yourself. And that can be quite problematic. We, we, we get very confused about the self, right? Now, I'll give you an example of this. There is a, we can think of ourselves not as single solitary beings. I've talked about this numerous times. We actually have many parts. We're used to this. I have parts of me that do this, parts of me, we, we, you know, part of me wants to eat chocolate, part of me wants to work out the gym, part of me wants to do whatever it is, right? And when you think more deeply, we have parts that, that can be problematic about us and painful. So quite some time ago, I was doing some work with a person and uh, we were identifying the various parts of themselves that, that were painful and wounded. And they had on the one side of the page just a bunch of stuff, a, a few things that were just deeply painful and wounded in their lives. Um, you know, this profound fear of rejection, for example. Let's pick that as the one thing. And, and then we got talking a little while later. This person looked and said, I said, how do you feel when you look at these parts of yourself? And they said, I hate that. I hate those parts of me. And then I said to them, have you ever had anyone say to you, I hate you? And they were like, no, I've never really had anyone say I hate you. I said, but you've just said to part of you that you hate part of you. I'm like, huh. Said that there is no bad part of us. We have multiple parts and actually the path of of healing and integration is to have an attitude of compassion even to those parts of ourselves that are painful and wounded and to will the good for those parts of us the shameful broken hurt parts i'll tell i'll give you i'll make this very clear in case that wasn't clear to you and and this is to, to illustrate it from my life there are many of you'll know this i had a, a fairly traumatic childhood and uh there are parts of me that at age 52, I hate the fact that I'm still burdened by what was done to me as a kid. I hate that. I'm like, why, why is it, why is the trauma still affect me? Why do I, I hate the fact that I get triggered by things and there are, there are afternoons where I just, I just can't function and I lie in a curled up ball having flashbacks, and you go, I hate that. Okay, so that's the natural tendency, that part of me that's so wounded and damaged. But but actually, that part of me, that little boy me that was so mistreated as a kid, that's my closest neighbor. It's my closest neighbor. And until I can have compassion and love for that part of me, I'm never really going to grow and find healing and be able to love those parts of you that are damaged and broken and have compassion on you. If I hate the broken, damaged, hurt parts of me, I'm going to hate them in you as well. I'm going to be overwhelmed when, they, when I encounter parts of you that are broken and damaged. And I'm not going to be able to have, if I can't have compassion on those bits of me that are broken and damaged and cause me to do dumb, sinful, stupid stuff. I can't have compassion on you. And then I can't love you. 
in our pro the, the parenting program we run circle of security we talk about shark music that parents have when your child has disturbing has has deep big emotions that trigger stuff in you you can have very powerful responses of your own that aren't anything to do with your kids needs but because they stir up stuff in you as the caregiver and that's the the stuff that self that is unhealed that I hate, that I want to do away with. And you go, no, I need to have compassion. I need to love. I need to bring that part of me to Jesus, right? Okay, so once I've done that, then I can think, okay, who's my neighbor? It's the people who are closest to me. So for us to be a church of people of love, man, first thing you got to do is love yourself, not in a, like in the way I've talked about, and there's a, the whole journey we can go on if you'd like to talk to me more about that. Then the second thing is identify those people who are closest to you and figure out what it is to love them. So that's what I'm going to do now. How are we going? We've got five minutes. Take out your pen, take out a pen or a bit of paper or your phone. And I want you to come up with five people who are your neighbors. Okay. And then we'll be done. Five, who is your neighbor? So, because it makes no sense for you to think, oh, my neighbor is the, you know, the Afghanistani woman who's being beaten by the Taliban. She is not your neighbor. She's a person you should care about, but your neighbor is the person you share a home with. And that person is far harder to love than a person in Afghanistan. And you need to be aware of what your capacity is. You can how what capacity do you actually have? Can you effectively do anything that is going to bring good to this person? If you have no capacity to bring about good for the other person, they are not your neighbor. You can't, they can't be your neighbor. They've got to be someone else's neighbor, but they're not yours. And you got plenty of neighbors. The person you share a bed with each night. Start with that. Your kid. So five, come up with five people who are your neighbors, who you are going to will and do good for. One of those might be your enemies, might be a current enemy of yours. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies, will the good. But don't start with your enemy. That's dumb. That's too hard. That's like going to the gym and trying to bench press, you know, 500 kilograms. You'll get there after a lifetime of training and drugs. But right now, just start bench pressing just the bar. <laughs> okay. Love your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Don't start with your enemy. Start with someone close by who, who isn't trying to kill you. Okay, now take that list and, and outside of this session, think very, two things. 
what is your attitude towards this person? Is it one of compassion? Or is it judgment or a need to control or indifference? You say, God, give me a heart of compassion. And then what good can you do for them practically today? What good can you do for them practically tomorrow? Like, do you actually know what would be good for them? How are you going to find out what would be good for them? You could ask them, hey, yeah, what do, what do you need? There's a thought. You could ask someone else for advice. Say, I want to do, I want to love, I want to do what's good for this person. It's just super practical, right? Like, it's just really practical. Now, do you know what will change our church? Is if you look at the people around you and you've put on that list folk in our little church family who are your neighbor, and you think, hmm, what good can I do to somebody who is part of this spiritual family this week? Like, do I know them well enough? What, how can I serve somebody this week? How can I do what's good for someone in this church this week? And it, there we go, it's simple, right? Like, it's super practical. We're going to sing a song, and then we're going to have morning tea. But guess what? We've got, a, we've got time after church to go around and, uh, and inquire of other people, what good can I do for you, neighbor? Maybe not, but maybe, like, how different would that be? And then as we head into 2023, what a, what a, how great would it be if week by week, the thing we're doing is getting better at loving our neighbors as ourselves. And then as that happens, we may even become those who have the ability to love our enemies. And boy, wouldn't that be something? And guess what's, can I, can I promise you, let me give you a money-back guarantee on this exercise. The money-back guarantee on this is that you will fail in your attempts to love people. And when you fail, the final step before we sing is you cycle back, not bicycle, you cycle back to God. Because as the passage says, we love because he first loved us. So I try and love you. I try and say, I want to do what's good for you. I want to do what's good for me. I want to act this out with compassion. And then I discover that I'm, I'm scared and I'm lazy and I'm selfish and I just want to do what's good for me, not what's good for you. And then I go, oh man, I've stuffed it up again. Okay, what do I do then? I repent and I come back to God and I say, God, you love me, forgive me. Now give me what it takes to get into the battle of love again. So you cycle back to God and then you get better at it. And you get better at it, and you get better at it, and you make progress, and you end up, this is what John Wesley said, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as you ever can. That's a pretty darn good definition of love from a guy who gave his life to doing it and changed the shape of industrial England as a result of it, the Wesleyan movement had massive implications all around the Anglosphere because of this. How cool is that? Okay. You excited about the journey of love? Do you feel like you know what's required?
We're just going to spend the next 20 years as a church doing that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks that you loved us with an everlasting, unconditional love. And I pray for us that you will take our intentions to love and do what is good for others. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll actually help us enact those and do those. And when we fail, as we will, may we come back to you to find in you grace and forgiveness and mercy and uh, the energy to try again. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.